gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bring the power this morning. Lord, that you would save those who've not yet been saved. Lord, for those that uh, have not been born again, Lord, that they would just come to know eternal life to be in you and forgiveness of sins. For those that are being saved today through sanctification, Lord, would you just be all of our power, Lord, and all of our uh, motivation and movement, Lord, towards godliness and towards um, worshiping you through our lives, Lord, loving on one another. And uh, Lord, would you just open up our minds to understand the things, the deep things of God, and even these um, foundational things. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is a chapter that could stand alone. Uh, If removed from the rest of the New Testament, you could still read it and understand what it means. It's something that could be apart from its wider context of 1 Corinthians and still make perfect, clear sense. Unlike 1 Corinthians 13, people always try to remove it from its wider context and use it just to, you know, get a fluttery feeling in our heart about love when really the context of the love chapter is chapter 12 and 14 around it that that our spiritual gifts would be motivated by love and that love is paramount over uh, our ecstatic and dramatic gifts as incredible as they are. Uh, Chapter uh, 15 is an exciting chapter regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ Uh, the center of which is the life and death of Jesus Christ, and the apex of which is his resurrection from the dead. Uh, We're going to study the resurrection uh, in the weeks to come, the proof of the resurrection, uh, and the implications of the resurrection in the life of the Christian. Uh, But today we're just going to begin the chapter by understanding this thing called the gospel. And let's look at verse 1 where it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. Paul was declaring, making known the gospel to a group of believers, people that he call here brethren. These are Christians that he's writing to, and he presently was still declaring to them the gospel. Oh no, you only declare the gospel to non-Christians or to the pagans. No, you declare the gospel to the brethren as well. It's a necessary thing, as we're going to see later on in our study today, to declare the gospel to brethren, to Christians, to believers, to the church. Now, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Most of us think of it as that genre of music in iTunes that, you know, just gets the heart happy, that sings about good things. Uh, I remember being a a young man when Jessica Simpson was just becoming popular. I don't think she's popular anymore. I'm not sure. I think that comment about buffaloes having wings, kind of like buffalo wings. Okay, she she thought they had wings, and so she kind of lost popularity there among her followers. Uh, But I remember... Uh, watching a talk show with her on it, and she said, I got my start singing. Is she from the South? I don't know. No? (laughs) I don't even know. I got my start singing uh, the gospel. And I was like, she must be a believer, you know? She must be a Christian. And I was from the South at that time as well. Uh, But the gospel is much... I was also young. So the gospel is much more than a genre of music. All right. It's from the Greek word euangelion. All right. And actually, we would pronounce it evangelion. Evangelize, evangelism. It means proclaiming the good news. Even in classic literature, the word gospel was designated to mean speaking forth good tidings. Uh, The word gospel was uh, a word that meant the good news from the battlefield which is something that I love as a bit of a military historian. I love reading about, you know, all kinds of military conquests and and how, you know, after the battle, the victory rider would ride back and share with the villages and the people in the back lines that we've won the battle, we've won the battle. And that's exactly what the gospel is. It's a declaring, it's a heralding of the good news that we have won the battle or rather that he has won the battle. Isn't that exciting? The battle has been won. 
gospel means a message of good tidings or glad tidings. And you remember the angels appeared to the shepherds and proclaimed glad tidings of good things. The gospel is the good news that God in Jesus Christ has fulfilled his promises to Israel. And that way of salvation has been shared to the whole world, open to all, even a Gentile like me. I might not look like it, like it but I'm, I'm a Gentile of the Gentiles. I'm like a Heinz 57 guy. I've got Irish and German and, you know, I'm part Native American. My great, 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 great grandpa was the last chief of the Omaha Indians. And even he was half French. All right. So his name was Chief Iron Eyes Lafleche. All right. That's... That's a French chief, all right? It's a walking contradiction, I'm just telling you right now, all right? But, uh, you know, so the good news has spread beyond Judea, beyond Samaria, beyond Asia Minor, beyond Europe, beyond Spain, across the ocean, across the colonies, across the Americas, and to Oregon, where a guy like me could come to know his Savior. There's good news there. There's good news that a guy like me could be saved from my pagan sins. Now, this good news, this gospel, is not set against the Old Testament as if God had changed his ways in dealing with man. But it's actually the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Romans chapter 2.16 is where Paul calls the gospel, My gospel. He loved this good news from the battlefield so much that he owned it, man. My gospel. Does anybody else else here love the gospel like that? It's mine. Don't you try to take it from me. I'll share, but I won't give it away, all right? In 1 Timothy, he tells Timothy that it's the glorious gospel. It shines. It's radiant. It's this good news, and it's mine. What is the gospel, though? What is this good news? I want to give you six points today that just expound the news, kind of give a broad look at this good news. And I want to start those six points with a couple bad points, with some bad news. We'll get to the good news, but first we must start with the bad to appreciate the good. It's very similar to in a jewelry store, how they have all these beautiful gems and glorious diamonds and all of these things. But before they bring out the jewels, they lay the black backdrop. And the black backdrop is necessary to make the gem shine all the more, stand out all the more. So allow me to lay the bad news, the blackness, before we bring out the glorious gem of the gospel. The first part of six in the gospel today is that there was something that took place called the fall. Something that took place called sin. Now, before this bad news was actually a little snippet of good news, all right? There was a time in the history of the world that everything was good. Everything was good. When God created the world, as you read the Genesis account of creation, it's very poetic that God created this on this day and he saw that it was good. And he created this on this day and he saw that it was good. And he created this on this day and he saw that it was good. And he created this and he saw that it was very good. And then he said, oh, there's something that's not good. Man shouldn't be alone. So he creates the woman to be with man. And then it was all very good and it was right. It was what the Hebrew word calls shalom. It was all shalom. You might appreciate this. When I went to Israel, I got my mom a tile that painted on it says, Shalom, y'all. All All right? That's something for you. That was especially for you. Shalom, y'all. That's what was happening in the Garden of Eden. Man, there was peace. You could run around naked and no one would make fun of you. All right? You just hung out with your wife and you never fought. You got to walk with God in the cool of the day. You got to have dominion over creation. You got, to, you got to keep a garden and tend it, and it was like a good thing. By the way, work isn't a result of sin. God worked when he created the heaven and the earth. Work is a gift from God. It's the toiling and the bondage to depravity that is the hard part. It was shalom. It was good. It was wonderful. You know, the best part of it all was that fellowship with God. Walking with God in the cool of the day. Sounds nice, doesn't it? Well, in the midst of that shalom was Genesis 2, 15 and 17. 
Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What happened? It wasn't long before that serpent who was the most crafty out of any creature, as Russell's children's Bible says, that sneaky snake came along. And he deceived Eve. He deceived Eve. And, he, and, and then Eve, full, uh, and then, I'm sorry, then Adam fully just chose to sin along with Eve. So we've got this deceit that took place. And we've got this just hardening your heart and stiffening your neck against God on Adam's part. And they fell into sin. They fell into transgression. We have what the Bible calls inherited sin begin on that day inherited sin says that every one of adam's sons inherited his sinful nature and in romans chapter 3 verses 23 through 24 it says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god guys we've got our daddy's eyes all right we've got adam's nature and Adam was a sinner. And so everyone who was born after him, man and woman, was born, as Romans chapter 5 tells us, through one man came sin. And sin spread to every man, and death through sin. Why? James tells us why. James tells us that just like you can see it in the Garden of Eve, account, of Eve Garden of Eve, I guess that works, account, that man was led away by his own desires. What desire was Eve led away with? Do you remember the reasoning? God hasn't said that you shouldn't. You know why he said you shouldn't eat it? Because he knows that you'll be like God and you'll be able to know all of these things. And, and it just began to work into her heart to be this desire to be God. That's what Lucifer wanted and to know everything. And oh yeah, her desire led her away. It led him away. And then it says that when desire is conceived, it brings forth sin. And so then sin took place. And then when, when sin is full born, it brings forth death. And that's exactly what we see happen in Genesis chapter 3. It's what we see happen in uh, uh, the James account of that. What happened when they were led away is found in Romans chapter 1 verse 18. We see that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest to them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, darkened. professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. This is an account of the fall with Adam and Eve, but it's an account of every one of our hearts since then. What happens is we know the truth, every single one of us, no matter where you're born on the earth, we have a conscience, the book of Romans tells us, and we know what is right. And even just looking at creation, it testifies that there is a creator God. His spirit bears witness to us that he's a holy God and, his, and he's placed in us this conscience to understand what he desires us to be and how we're to live and how we're to behave. All right. Now, what we do with that, though, is we say, well, I don't want to do that. And it says we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And it says in our suppression of the truth, hey, we know God. We know what, he, what his desire is for us, but we suppress that. We say no, God. And we just read about something that's called the great exchange. What's the great exchange? It's where you exchange the glory of the incorruptible God and you begin to worship something that is created and made like corruptible man. 
You exchange worship that belongs to God because he's creator. He has creator rights over you. He's created you in his image to be a worshiper of him and to reflect his glory to the whole world. But we say, no, God, I don't like your rules. I don't like your ways. I want to do it my way. And we de-God God and we make ourselves God, every single one of us. Whatever sin it is that you have done ever in your life, there was some sort of an exchange that took place. If you've ever been involved in sexual immorality, you know that God has said, hey, sex is for a man and for his wife, a husband and wife within the covenant bonds of marriage. The marriage bed is undefiled. It is pure above all. But fornicators and those who have sex outside of marriage, God will judge and adulterers as well. All right. So we know God's standards that sex is between one man, one woman for life. But we say, no, God. I want it with whoever I want it to be for however many times I want it to be uh, with however many different people I want it to be. I want it when I want it and I want it now. So what have we just made our God? We've made sex our God. We've made ourselves our God. We've become worshipers of idols. I want to tell you something and I, I want you to have mercy. All right. Because it's about my son, my lovely son, but it's an illustration Yesterday, I was at my mom's house, and I was talking to my son, or I was talking to my mom, and I noticed my son went to the candy bowl at her house, and he kind of did this. And he starts running up the stairs, and I'm like, back here. And he's like, what? I was like, where are you taking that candy? I don't have any candy. I see it. Where are you taking it? I was just going to go up and put it in your suitcase. All right? And I was like, put it back, you know? A little while later, I go into the bathroom and floating in the toilet is a wrapper to a peppermint almond roca. Okay? So I go out to the kids and I go, and Lainey's actually our candy girl. And so I'm like, Lainey, did you eat a candy? No, I didn't. I'm like, then where did this almond roca wrapper come from that was in the toilet? She's like, it wasn't me. I was like, Russell, he's playing the Wii. No, it wasn't me, you know. And I get on Lainey because she's our candy girl. This is a normal occurrence, all right? And she just adamantly, it's not me. And she begins weeping. And so I'm like, all right, kids, come here, come here. Guys, who did it? I'm not, I won't be mad. Just be honest with me now. It'll be good for you now to tell me the truth. Nope, neither one of them did it, okay? So you're telling me that Grammy went and had an almond roca and threw the wrapper in the toilet. Grammy would do that? No, we're not saying that. And then it dawned on me, oh, it was a peppermint almond roca. Let me smell your breath, all right? <laughs> Laney's clean. Russell does a little... I'm like, let me smell it. Peppermint. All right. And I got a ch- I had a chance to talk to my son and to say, we talk about idols all the time and how we, our human nature is that our heart is an idol making factory. Anything and everything, man, woman, child. Did you read here that, you know, we're going to exchange our worship from God to forfeited animals and beasts and human things and creeping things and things with wrappers, you know, that taste yummy and sweet. And I said, son, what's your God been today? Because you're willing to sacrifice fellowship with your family, you're willing to lie, you're willing to hide, you're willing to let your sister take the blame. I said, son, today, we've talked about this, video games can be our idols, whatever. I said, today, what's been your God? Candy's been my God. All right, man, you gotta, you gotta put your God back on his throne. You gotta put God back on his throne. All right? Because you wanted this so bad, you became a liar, you betrayed your sister, You know, all of these things. And that's what happens when we sin. We yield to our desires, all right? Our desires, when fully conceived, bring forth sin. And sin, when it's full born, ends in death, all right? Romans 1 tells us that sin at its root is a worship disorder. And you go on to read that they... uh, You see that God, in verse 24, gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
And so what we're reading is that every man has inherited a sin from Adam, a sinful nature from Adam, and our bent towards sin is to always exalt someone or something, all right? Something that has hooves or something that neighs or something that has a litter box or something that has chrome and rubber wheels and can jump high, whatever it might be. We pump out idols like crazy in our lives. And it began with our great, 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 great grandpa, Adam. And what that tells us is that every single one of us is a sinner. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that we all are like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and all and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. You know what? The best one of us on our best day is a filthy pile of nasty rags. I'm not going to tell you what kind of rags these are, but the language tells us it's, it's very gross, okay? And that's what the best one of us on our best day is like, all right? We're filthy before a holy, righteous, pure, and spotless God. Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 18 tells us that there is none righteous. That means nobody's innocent in and of themselves. Nobody's just pure and innocent little creature, okay? There is none righteous. No, not one. I like that because when you first hear there's no one righteous or innocent, you think, well, you know, there's me. (laughs) And then they say, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Well, what about, you know, what about those nice humanitarians or the, you know, benevolent man out there who's just serving humanity or whatever, apart from Jesus? He's pretty good. And you know what? The scripture lays bare the heart to show us that on the outside might look really fancy and awesome, but the Lord tests the heart. He knows the motives behind it all. All right. He knows the hidden pride. He knows what this individual is like behind closed doors. He knows the agenda that this individual has. And no matter what, the word of God stands that nobody is good. Nobody. No, not one. He says that these good people on their best day, that their throat is like an open tomb. Guys got some bad breath. That's all I got to say. With their tongues, they practice deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Asps is under their lips. Lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What this section of scripture tells us that the natural man is depraved. In and of himself, he is not right. He is not innocent. There is nothing good in him that would earn him a place in heaven. And if you think that you are that individual, then there was no need for Jesus to come, for the Son of God to come and to be slaughtered on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. Because God could have just said, well, let's just wait for that guy from Primeville to take care of it. All right? He had to send his innocent, pure, and holy Son to do the dirty work. And so we have this inherited sinful nature because of Adam. It's in our genes. But we also have what's called imputed sin. It's an accounting word that means to add into one's account. It means that we, so we've got Adam's sin going. We got that thing going for us. But then we also choose to do what Adam chose to do. To stiffen our neck against God. To shrug our shoulders about what God has said not to do or what to do. I don't really care what you have to say. And as we do those things, we heap into our account sin after sin after sin after sin after sin. And our lists are miles long. Not only have we inherited sin, but we have imputed sin. We have sin placed in our account. The dark news is that everyone is a sinner. Everyone is a sinner. And if has fallen short of the glory of God. Second out of six here, two out of six points of the gospel. That sin results in death, okay? Whether that's death in this life, 
death in the things that we see around us, things failing. And then to add to that, there's the death in the life to come, which scripture calls the second death. Now listen in Genesis 3:17. Then to Adam, he said, this is after Adam and Eve were caught red hand handed and in sin. Adam is told because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So this is the day when death enters the world because of sin. The earth is now cursed. And Romans chapter 8 verses 20 tells us a little bit more about what happened the day the earth was cursed. It says that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So clear back there in the garden, creation was subjected to futility. Futility means uselessness, frustration, vanity, grasping for the wind. It means laboring and laboring and still just stuff comes about under the banner, banner of futility, worth, worthlessness. Subjected to futility. This means that you go out now and we're going to see... God tell Adam this, that now you're going to have to work the garden and you're going to see thorns now, you're going to see weeds now, and you're going to have to toil and labor under the sun, all right? This work has become hard. This type of work has become a curse. We see that now as he goes to try to garden, the Canadian thistle springs up, all right? And he goes to grab it and, you know? And then he goes over here, and then he gets stung by a yellow jacket. Oh! <laughs> you know? And then he turns around to go get a Band-Aid and some ice, and he steps on the rake, and oh! You know? we got the three stooges happening here because of this subjection to futility. Stuff just gets really frustrating, and you know it. Even your dream job that you have, there's things that are just, this is so frustrating, all right? Or worthless, or this is useless, who is responsible for all of this subjection to frustration? Oh, it's Eve, right? Can I get an amen? Okay. Or it's Adam. Yeah. He was just standing there. He should have said something. All right? Or it was that sneaky snake. Who's responsible for this? God. God is. God's not the one who sinned, but God is the one who's responsible in divine judgment. He put judgment upon the earth and allowed it to be subjected to futility. Only he has that kind of authority over the world. Why has he done this? Why has he given it over to entropy? It says he did it in hope. He did it in hope. He had a plan now behind all of this suffering that was a result of sin. And as we go on there in Romans chapter 8, it says, because the creation itself will be delivered. He has a plan of redemption. All of creation, the bee, the weed, it all will be delivered from this bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. You see, this decree that God set forth in Genesis chapter 3 was a judicial decree on sin. Now, God is love, all right? God is compassionate. God is mercy. But he is also righteous and he is also just. And he had to deal with sin. He couldn't just wink at it <laughs> or sweep it under the rug. He had to deal with it. One preacher says, the account of the fall is on a cosmic level all throughout scripture. And the responsibility and effects of the fall and the consequences of it are laid at our doorstep every day through suffering. The curse was not fallen into naturally. It was a divine judgment on sin. These weeds and these thistles, all of these things, all of the suffering. It says this he did, Donald Barnhouse, I'm quoting him. He says, all of this suffering he allowed in order to bring forth the lesson that all of his creatures would be able to see. 
that leave the vain creation as an object lesson to show that there is no path of blessing except in yieldedness to the will of the creator and that every departure of it from that will will mean death. Let me say that last little bit from Barnhouse. It was an, suffering is an object lesson to show that there is no path of blessing except in yielding to the will of the creator and every departure from his will means death. There's suffering for a reason. C.S. Lewis says that suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Every time there's war, every time there's bombings, every time there's school shootings, God's megaphone is shouting out and saying, that is how bad your sin is. Every time there's an abortion, every time a man cheats on his wife, every time a wife puts her kids in her car and drives it into a lake to kill them, that is how bad your sin is. Your lie to your mom, you're stealing the candy, you're sneaking out at night, your disobedience to your parents, your sexual thoughts that you've just been fostering on and just thinking about and letting just settle into your heart so you're lusting in your heart after that guy or that girl. That's all how bad your sin is. The genocide, the world wars, it's all because of God says don't eat that apple or that fruit, whatever it might have been. Well, I mean, God doesn't know. God just doesn't want you to have fun. You should do it and just do what you want to do and not what he wants to do. Okay, here, have it. Boom! A judicial decree on sin. Suffering is brought into the world to show us how bad our sin is. And not only is it that bad, but God loves us that much. Because God didn't just hang out on a lawn chair sipping lemonade all day. He entered into this world of suffering, became a man, and dwelt among us for 33 years. That's a year longer than I've been on the earth. He suffered. He knows what it's like to be tempted on every level. He knows what it's like to bring his libido under subjection, to not be angry and scream at the disciples. You know, he knows what it's like to be tempted. And yet, in all ways, he did not sin. He lived that perfect life. He went through it all. And that shows us how much God loves us. Suffering shows us how bad sin is. And the suffering of the Savior shows us how much he loves us. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Oh, just believe what you want to believe. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, but... (laughs) (laughs) Truth is relative, man. You don't got to bow the knee to Jesus. He doesn't have to be your Lord. Have other saviors. All right? Do things your way. That's what the sneaky snake was telling Eve. Don't buy into it. And the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all of that unrighteousness that is in this world today. You know what wrath is? It's a continual building up of hatred against sin. And over the last 6,000 years or so, the wrath of God has been building up against sin and against sinners. Like a giant dam, like the Hoover Dam with water just packing up against and packing up against it. And we see that later on in world history, that dam is going to break and the wrath of God is going to be poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. The good news is, and I'm spoiling it a little bit, is that he also poured out his wrath upon his son. So that anybody who believed on him would be saved from the wrath to come. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Show us the death that comes through sin. It's at a place in this great holy courtroom called the great white throne judgment. And the revelator John says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead the small, the great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. 
The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone found written in the book of life, not written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. We have this final judgment of mankind before the most holy and pure and righteous judge that the universe has ever seen. This guy has never sinned. He can't be around sin. And so he stands as the righteous judge in his courtroom on his white throne. And every man who's rejected Christ comes to try to plead his case. Well, I've been a Boy Scout like three times, and I helped a little old lady across the street, and I'm an American, right? I mean, that's going to be a lot of people like, that's what I'm going to say to God one day. I'm going to stand before this great white throne, the face of whom heaven and earth just like, and there's God in all of his glory and all of his purity and all of his holiness and all of his righteousness. There he is, and books are opened up before this judge. We only know actually what one of them is called. But I would suspect that two of the other books, that one would be the Law of Moses. All right. No, we're not just talking the Ten Commandments. We're talking another 603 on top of that. All right. I've broken every one of the Ten Commandments, at least in my heart. All right. And I don't even know if I even can list the other 603. Okay. So something tells me I'm in trouble. I'm also guessing that the next book that's opened up is the account of my life, all right, or this individual's life. And when you weigh it, my life versus the law of God, all right, I've completely broken the standards of God. Then there's the third book, and this is, this is the crux. This is what matters. It's called the book of life. And there's names that are written in it. And anyone whose name was not written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. And you know what's happening right here at the great white throne judgment? Nobody's names are written there. Nobody's names. This judgment is a judgment specifically for those who have resisted Christ their entire life and never yielded to him. And their names are not in the, lake, in the book of life. And they are cast into the lake of fire. And we just read it. That is called the second death. The second death. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin are death. You get paid for your sin. Woohoo! Yeah, it's death. That's the payment for you. You guys ready for the good news? That's a lot of bad news. That's the black man. You are so sinful. You are more sinful than you could ever imagine. You are more wicked than you could ever imagine. I'm talking to you. And I'm talking to me. But... I'm also more loved than I could ever know. And I love that this verse on the screen has a part B. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We now bring out the glorious gem of the gospel with all of its many faucets and we set it down across the black backdrop of sin and death and rebellion against God. And we see point three out of six today is that there is forgiveness of sins through Christ's death. Clear back in the garden when Adam and Eve are caught red-handed and a judicial judgment against sin is set forth over the whole globe, God speaks to the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, God wasn't caught off guard by Adam and Eve's sin. I got this plan that we're just going to live forever in the garden and nothing bad is ever going to happen. No, he's sovereign. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. He knew exactly what had happened. And he had a plan from the beginning of how he was going to save the world from their sin. And here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have what's called the proto-evangelium. It means the first gospel, where he says to Satan, I got a plan, buddy, and your head is going to be smushed. 
All you're going to be able to do is kind of bruise this guy's heel because he's going to crush you, man. Good news. That event has already happened in world history. 2,000 years ago, you can go to the place today called Golgotha on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, Israel. And you can go to the place of the skull, and it still looks like a skull today. There's a bus station there, though. And it's the place where the Son of God laid down his life for the sins of the world. You know what Isaiah tells us in chapter 53, verses 4 and 5? It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him as stricken, smitten by God. What does it look like to be smitten by God? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, his whippings on his back, we are healed. He was bruised, but he won the battle. Preach the good news, man. Preach the gospel. He has crushed Satan. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. There's a song that you probably sang growing up if you grew up in the church. I wonder what you ever thought or saw in me. You know what? He didn't see anything good in you. While you were still a sinner, while you were still at enmity against God, you were war with God, he loved you. And he came and he laid his life down for you. This is the good news. This is the good news that God has a plan to save us from the wrath of God. In Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 26, I want to give you three new vocab words for your Christian dictionary. Because it says here, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You guys ready for some new radical Christianese words? All right. Justified. We are justified freely by God's grace. Justified is a legal term. And it means that we are regarded as righteous. We are absolved from any wrongdoing. A great way to remember what justified means is that I've been justified just as if I'd never sinned. That's justified. Can you remember that? Jesus justifies us freely by his grace, by a gift. We also see the word redemption. All right? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I love the word redemption because it means the payment of a ransom, all right? In Christ's death, he paid the ransom. You know, that movie, Ransom with Mel Gibson, give me back my son! You know? God was saying, have my son. Have my son, and he will pay the ransom for the sins of the world. It's the picture of someone being on an auction block of slavery, and someone comes up and buys their ticket buys them off the auction block and sets them free. And Jesus has purchased our ransom. He has redeemed us, not with gold or silver, something that perishes with the using, and not with the blood of bulls and goats, but Hebrews tells us many times, and Peter tells us, that it was with the precious blood of Jesus, as a lamb without spot. Jesus' blood is the ransom payment. It's the redemption. We also see the word propitiation there in Romans. It says that God set forth Christ Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. All right, propitiation, right? That's like, woo, that is a hard word to remember. How about this? A propitiatory sacrifice. Does that help anybody? Me neither, okay. 
What this means is, propitiation means that wrath has been removed by an offering of a gift. Remember I was talking about all that wrath that's just being built up against sin, built up against sin. God hates sin. It says in the Psalms that God is angry with the wicked every single day. But God made a plan that that wrath wouldn't go upon you. And so he sent his son and he poured out his wrath upon his son. Jesus paid for us. Jesus was our substitute. Jesus took our place and the wrath of God was poured out on the son. God took it in and of himself. First John 2, 1 and 2, at the end, actually, it says that Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. That means that Jesus is the gift that removes the wrath. Does that sound good to anybody here? I kind of like wrath. I want to see what that'll be like. No, 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 you don't. All right. You don't want to see what the wrath of the creator of the universe would be like. And if you are apart from Christ today, I am telling you in love, it is being built up against you. In the Old Testament, the word propitiation was ex- described by a different word, kipper, in the Hebrew. Anyone have kids that watch Kipper the dog? That means atonement. Yeah, I want my kid watching Atonement the dog. That's great. Atonement is another word that I want to give you today. What is atonement? Let's break up the word atonement. At one moment. Atonement. At one moment. Now, if you remember reading the Old Testament, if you've ever read it, you remember that the blood of bulls and goats had to be spilt all the time just to cover people's sin, all right? And one time a year, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go and he would kill a bull or he would kill a goat and he would offer up a sacrifice for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. And then one dude, the high priest, was able to go into the holy place of God where the Shekinah glory was and the Ark of the Covenant. And he was able to go in there and mediate and be a bridge between God and the people. Now, in the New Testament, there's a greater fulfillment of that in our great high priest, Jesus, okay? Now, our great high priest, Jesus, went one time to the place of sacrifice. He offered up himself as the sacrifice, and he did it once for all, one time for all. So now it's not, oh, my sins are covered for now. Until we got to kill the next lamb, all right? And the Bible tells us that there was never a cleansing of conscience that took place, but a reminder of sin. And the book of Hebrews tells us that since Jesus has gone as our high priest, and he didn't offer up some other blood for his own sins and for other sins, he offered up himself, not for his own sins, but for the sins of the entire world. And he did it once for all that our conscience can be cleansed. And that we can now serve God. It's the beauty of the good news. It's the, it's the great news. And in Zechariah 3, 9, he says that I will remove the iniquity of a land in one day. See, before it was just this perpetual offering. Slaughter, 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 slaughter. But it was all pointing to our hero who was going to be slaughtered and not stay dead, but rise from the dead because he's God. He would bear on himself our sins. And in one day... He would remove the iniquity of our land. In one day, we can rest on him right now for salvation and everyone in this room could be forgiven of their sins. They could receive the atonement that comes through Jesus Christ and there'd be no sin here. Like the psalm would be true that your sins and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far I've removed your sin from you. Does that sound good to anybody here? Because I don't want a guilty conscience. I don't want to be thinking about that thing, those things that I, I've done. I want to know that I've been cleansed and I'm right before God. And I can look him in the eye on that day and not say, yeah, I was pretty awesome. But I can say, thank you. Thank you for your son who was pretty awesome. And he died for me that I can be with you once more. That verse from Romans with all the vocab words. When I was in the school of ministry, 
there was an assignment that we are supposed to write poems or do artwork that used these great vocab words, you know, so that we could remember them because they're so special. And my worship leader friend, Ryan Smith from Calvary Corvallis, wrote this song that is so beautiful and I was singing it on my way to church today and I just broke down into tears. Because as I'm preaching a message like this today, I am so aware of all my sins, how gross they are, how deceitful they are, how perverted they are, how crooked they are, how cruel they are, how selfish they are, how malicious they are, how deceitful and cunning and manipulative. That's me. I could go on and on and on. But singing this song, I was reminded, it's not on me anymore. It's on Jesus. It's on Jesus. And my friend wrote this song that said, you justified me. Just as if I'd never sinned, I'm innocent. Lord, you redeemed me, paid a price I couldn't pay. Now I am saved. How could my works appease you? How could I ever please you? I rest in the crucifixion, the resurrection, in your perfection. How could I stand before you? Righteous and holy are you. Only your propitiation can make atonement for my salvation. Great doctrinal words that it's okay to love. So our third out of six points of the gospel, the first good news bit is that there is forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. And our fourth point, we're going to go through these final ones a bit quicker, is that it's applied to those who receive it through faith. Remember in our Romans 3.22 verse, that even the rightness of God, you could use that word rightness or righteousness, the rightness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference doesn't matter if you're wealthy or if you're poor, if you're a redneck or a hick from the sticks, or if you're a city boy, if you're black or white or yellow, or you're from Europe or you're from South America, whatever. It's to all and on all who would believe. And this is the part of the gospel that just responds. It's not a work that saves you. All right. It's just a response to what Jesus has done for you. You just receive the gift. In Romans 3.26, it says that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's good to hear all this and be like, oh, there's a just God out there. There's a just and a justifier, and he makes righteous and propitiation, atonement, reconciliation, redeeming, blah, blah, blah. All right? But you must believe. You must receive through faith this gift of God. In John chapter 3.16, one of the most popular verses in the whole Bible, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Who is it that reaps the benefits of what Jesus has done? Those who believe. All right? Those who rest. There's a story of a missionary. I can't remember his name, but he went to this... Uh, jungled tribe that had no Bible in their written language. And he learned their language and was translating a Bible to them. And he was trying to figure out how to translate the word believe. And as they were, he was walking with the natives through the jungle and they were hacking down vines and just getting tired. They stopped and they rested on a giant log and just, they all just kind of sprawled out on this log. And he goes, I got to use that word, that word that they described to rest on the log. That's believing. It's resting in what Jesus has done for you. John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13 say that as many as receive him, Jesus, as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born. You've heard the term born again who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, God is the initiator of this salvation. He's the one that's working. No man comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. 
This is not something that man, his will, has done this. This is something that God has done, and man just receives. Man just rests in what God has done. You know what I love is not only have we been saved from sin, not only have our sins been forgiven, but we just read it. We are now called sons and daughters of God. You know, Bill Gates has a son named Rory. I've tried to capitalize on that a few times, right? Hey, it's me, all right? That's nothing compared to being the son and daughter of God because the Bible says that we have an inheritance now that we're sons and daughters of God. We've been adopted in and Jesus the son has shared his inheritance with us. And it is an inheritance undefiled and incorruptible in the heavens. It's eternal. The good news continues, this euangelion, with number five, that we are now New word, sanctified in the Spirit. What does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit comes into us when we receive the work of Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes into us and transforms us from the inside out. He changes our behavior. He puts a new heart in us. The new covenant prophesied in the Old Testament says, I will take out your heart of stone that cannot know God, and I will put in you a heart of flesh that now can know God and is alive and beats. You've been born again by the Spirit of God. You're a new creation. And now that Spirit of God in you gives you the power to obey God and do the things that God would have you do. It's called sanctification. It's this process of the Holy Spirit making us less like the world and all of its filth and more like God and all of his purity. One man said that the gospel is not just the door to get into the building, but it's the whole building. And many Christians think that the gospel is only something to preach at a Billy Graham crusade so that people will get saved. And I've heard Christians in churches go, that pastor just makes me so mad. All I ever hear is the gospel there. You know what? Maybe you've thought that. Let me tell you, the gospel is not just the door to get you into the Christian faith. It's the whole Christian faith. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. That's a continuing work. You see, in the Bible, in our biblical theology, we have been saved from sin, we are being saved from sin, and we will be saved from sin. All right? It's the already, not yet, of the kingdom of God. He's setting us apart until one, one day we'll look Jesus in the face and the work will have been completed by God, from God's power. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in us. Finally, sixth point of the gospel. Shalom is restored. Peace with God is restored. And we as his image bearers are healed. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18 says that one day the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. This is an event called the rapture of the church. That word caught up in the Latin is raptus. It's where we get the word rapture. That one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to meet us in the clouds. And anyone that's still alive, first the dead, they're going to be resurrected. And then those who are still alive will be caught up to meet those in the air. An exciting time. But you know what the most exciting part of it all is? Is it says that thus we shall always be with the Lord. Just like in the garden. Just like with Shalom, walk in with the Lord in the cool of the day. I have the worship team come back up. And I want to close with just looking at God's revelation of that Shalom. That one day, it's just fully going to, we're going to be there. We're going to see it. We're going to see Jesus face to face. All right? There's going to be no more of this suffering. It's going to all have been completed. We're going to get to see Jesus. And in Revelation 21... Verse 1, it says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. 
Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. Guys, that's heaven. It's not snowboarding from the highest heights and riding a unicorn or whatever else crazy thing you got in your head. It's being with God, like in his presence all the time, seeing him. Beholding his beauty, worshiping him, giving him glory. Oh, it says in this same passage, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, but the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. What's done? It's finished. The gospel. One day, he's going to say, It's done. The gospel's totally completed, and we're living it out. It's done. He says, I'm the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And everybody who ever, no matter what they believe in, they'll all be there in heaven. Whatever God they chose. That's not what it says. It says, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And Revelation 21, 22 says, in this New Jerusalem, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then in the last chapter of the Bible, just five verses here, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either sides of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. We springboarded today off of a half of a verse. Where Paul just says, I declared to you the gospel, brethren. And brethren, today, I had the privilege of declaring to you, the good news from the battlefield that your sins have been paid for don't think just because you're here and you look all good and christian that that you just get this it's not about that have you responded have you received have you believed in this work that god has done so that the wrath of god wouldn't be upon you but it would be upon his son 
You know what you've done. God has shown you your sin today. Your rebellion, your shrugging of your shoulders of what he has said. No, God, I'm not doing what you want to do. I'm doing what I want to do. It's in every one of you. It's been in me. Repent. The Bible says that when Jesus began his ministry, he said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Do you believe this? Do you believe the gospel? There's forgiveness of sins. There's a cleansing of conscience. There's a fellowship, a shalom restored with the God of the universe who designed you and knows you by name and loves you. And he's got a book and he's got an open spot right there and he's got a pen ready. He says, won't you receive? Won't you humble yourself and just receive what I've done for you? Won't you believe this? Won't you throw down all of your little fake gods that have no power and just yield to me, the creator of it all? To those who receive, their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We have that future of heaven. Man, I had one of the hardest times studying this this weekend. Couldn't sleep at all this last night. Was confronted with sin, just sin and sinners this weekend. And just God just gave me compassion for sinners. And he reminded me of my own sins. I was up at 4.30 this morning, just on my face, praying that God would move in our church as the gospel is declared. And today we're going to go have communion right now. And we're going to take a couple of elements. We're going to take bread, which is a representation of Jesus's body being bruised and beaten. And we're going to take some juice and we're going to drink that. And man, let its sweetness today just remind you of the blood of Jesus, the love of Jesus. And how his blood was spilt to atone for your sins. His blood was spilt and his body was bruised and beaten so that that propitiation, that gift might turn the wrath of God. Have you received that today? Have you received that? Grab the elements today. And as you eat them, receive. Receive what Jesus has done into your inner man, into your innermost being. Lord, I take part in what you've done. I receive into my inner heart what you've done on the cross. Change my heart. Change my life. Set, set me into sanctification motion. I look forward to this heaven, this eternity, this shalom, where I'll be with you forever. Let's close with this song. And as you're ready, come and sing. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon, 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.